the underlying and underpinning mechanisms are pretty much all the same across the board. So if you help the obesity, you're going to help the periodontal disease and you're also going to help the type 2 diabetes. If you look at type 2 diabetes and periodontal disease, the underlying mechanisms are almost the same. So if I have a type 2 diabetic that comes into clinic, we have to understand what's happening in his mouth because you've got this bi-directional relationships between disease processes. If you deal with one, you'll help the other. If you don't deal with one, it'll accelerate the other. Pete Williams is the founder of Functional Medicine Associates. You heard him last week, and he's back to tell us even more about why we need to be tackling the root causes of our ill health, not just the symptoms. I'm Liz Earle, and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast that helps us all have a better second half, thanks to my mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, have you already listened to last week's episode with Pete? we started to get a really good understanding of what functional medicine is. That's the treatment of the whole body, looking at what makes us well and what keeps us well, not just how to fix a particular symptom. But all Pete's incredible knowledge, honestly, just gave me even more questions. I was scribbling things down in my notebook throughout our conversation. So I asked Pete if he wouldn't mind coming back and doing an even deeper dive into some of the areas we just managed to scratch the surface of before. So today then, oral health, reducing inflammation, exercise tracking, and lots, lots more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, welcome back, Pete. And I'm just so pleased that we've been able to twist your arm and get you to record this next episode because we covered so much of the sort of general groundwork, if you like, of functional medicine last time we chatted. And I was so busy scribbling lots and lots of notes during that conversation. So let's just pick a topic here, shall we, and kind of see where we end up. Um, perhaps starting with oral health, because you, 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 you gave just a line about that last time, which really struck me about how oral health is now being looked at so in so much detail in terms of our overall immune system and general health, you know, the bacteria in our mouths. What's the connection between what's going on in our mouth and what's going on in the body? All right. So I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the brief summary and then we'll sort of expand it into a slightly larger picture. Uh, so uh, I think oral uh, sort of oral disease or periodontal disease is is being seen as a gatekeeper disease for other diseases to develop. And there's a real mechanism of, of what's at stake here. And, and we talked about it in the, in the last conversation. Where it was really about dysfunction of the barrier in the mouth. So 
when you start to get bleeding gums, when you start to get irritated gums, and then when you start to get gum recession, you're moving down that pathway from sort of um, inflammation, gingivitis, to periodontal disease. And let me just be clear on the literature. 50% of the population over 50 in the UK will have some degree of periodontal disease, some more serious, some sort of they don't even know about it. But what is happening there is that there is there is a compromise in the barrier. So you start to get these sort of pockets where the gums start to come away from the teeth. And then what, when that starts to occur, there is more opportunity for pathogenic bacteria in the mouth to translocate from the mouth to any other area in the body. And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples because I've actually done quite a lot of research in, in this field. And this is this is standard practice of every patient that comes into us that we understand what's happening in the mouth and we also test them for it. There is one pathogen in particular, and, it, and we call it, this is a pathogen that we call in the red group. It's called Porphyrmonis gingivalis, and it's it's got a very high association with Alzheimer's disease. So let me just clearly what's going on there. You've got a pathogenic bacteria that has a better chance of slipping in through the gums because the gums are receding or the gums are bleeding. And then it gets into the general system and can end up in the brain. There's a huge amount of research with regards to this bacteria being implicated in the advancement of Alzheimer's disease. That's extraordinary. So something as simple as improving your oral health regime, brushing your teeth, flossing, you're saying could potentially be a major issue and factor in developing Alzheimer's. So I'm not just saying that. I mean, the literature has been very clear on this for the last 20 years. Um, I mean, I'm so involved with this, this section now is that I actually a few years back, um, with one of the genetics company there that, that I work with, I developed a, a genomics panel to look at how an individual's immune system responds to some of these pathogenic bacteria. Because gum disease is, is a two-part process. And, and I think about it this very simply, who's on the battlefield and how pathogenic they are and how many numbers are there? And then how aggressive is your immune system going to to respond to that bacteria because the more pathogens and the more aggressive the immune system the more likely you're going to have accelerated periodontal disease and of course there's been some really amazing papers on this and what i would say on this is that i take it back to what you said if you really do start spending more time on your oral health you are potentially reducing decades worth of problems within the brain from some of these bacteria getting into the brain. And as I said to remember, when we're talking about Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's in many people is fundamentally being driven because it's an infective disease. There are pathogens or bacteria getting into the brain when they shouldn't be. And the brain has to respond. So you have these people where they have consistent neurological inflammation from their brain's immune system responding to pathogens that shouldn't be there. That is phenomenal. I am not going to skimp on my toothbrushing or flossing ever again after that conversation. Something that's just so simple. And I, I guess it's slightly enraging too, that if, you're, as you're saying, the data has been around for the last 20 years or so, why this is not being more widely talked about. And even when we have a, a regular dental check, I mean, I, I've had my annual check recently with my dentist, that's an ideal opportunity, isn't it? Especially for sort of midlife people, for, for them to say, by the way, you know, obviously you want to keep your teeth in good condition, but do you know that by doing that, you can also help protect your brain? Yeah, I think it, I think this is moving 
now though, Liz. But I mean, obviously, when I first developed the genetics panel, and still, not only did I develop a genetics panel, I built a we've we've built a whole sort of one day course that allows dental professionals to to understand this local and systemic link. And I think this is the key. You know, I mean, oral diseases and some of these translocation of bacteria, it's not just consigned to Alzheimer's. You see this fundamentally in cardiovascular disease. And, and, it, and there, was a, there was a really outstanding paper done by the researchers at Texas Tech and Vanderbilt in the US in 2017. And what their paper was showing, again, was Porphyrmonis gingivalis is one of the key players in the development of atherosclerosis plaques. So in the development of these plaques that you get, there are a certain, you know, which are essentially cardiovascular disease. And what's happening there, again, just very simply, is that that bacteria is, is getting through the mouth, through the gums, and then it's moving around the body and then settling in into the vascular endothelium. And your immune system's going, you definitely shouldn't be here. And remember, your immune system can only respond with chemical warfare. So it responds with inflammation, ramps up oxidative stress, and brings in increased immune activation. All the three mechanisms that drive most diseases. Extraordinary. And you've you've mentioned a key word there, which I'd love to talk to you about, and that's inflammation. And it seems to me, you know, working in the world of well-being, that virtually every disease and disorder that we talk about now has its roots linked to inflammation is that the case? And, and what are the best ways that we can help reduce inflammation? Yeah, so yes, is the answer to that. I think excessive, and I, I need to be get clear on terms. Sure, you need a little bit, don't we? We need a little yeah. bit of inflammation, but yes, it's that you do. overload. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to be clear, you in certain circumstances, you need a lot. So at right. the beginning of infection, you really want a really good, robust immune response. And when you do that, you're going to get that in big inflammatory response. You know, and remember we talked about immune activation with regards to sickness behavior, which is the, the sort of becoming the more acceptive theory of depression. You know, that is exactly what's going on on a very mild level that you have people with with mood disorders, many of them. Um, so that feeling of that sickness feeling that you get on the, on the onset of um, an infection is your immune system ramping up against a, an invader. So you, in certain times, you need a good punch of, infl- of inflammation, um, but on most of the time, you don't. And what we're seeing, particularly with chronic diseases, and I, I, again, just to, the inflammation is one of the primary driving pathways of accelerating the disease process. And this is a really interesting thing about diseases, Liz, because many diseases, let me give you an example. Uh, I had a 58-year-old male patient come in a few months back with what we'd consider three separate diseases. He's got periodontal disease, he's got type 2 diabetes, and he's got obesity. Now, you could look at that and say, okay, three separate diseases need to be treated separately. But the reality of those three diseases, the underlying and underpinning mechanisms are pretty much all the same across the board. So if you help the obesity, you're going to help the periodontal disease, and you're also going to help the type 2 diabetes. If you help the periodontal disease, you're going to help the obesity, you're going to help the type 2 diabetes. And so what we see, again, there's loads of papers on this. If you look at type 2 diabetes and periodontal disease, the underlying mechanisms are almost the same. So if I have a type 2 diabetic that comes into clinic, we have to understand what's happening in his mouth because you've got this bi-directional relationships between disease processes. If you deal with one, you'll help the other. 
If you don't deal with one, it'll accelerate the other. So what are the best ways then to help reduce inflammation? And for those of us who may not yet have been diagnosed with with one of these degenerative diseases, and obviously we don't want to be, and we're going to look at overall helping to reduce our levels of excess inflammation, what are the simple strategies that we could actually be adopting? I would say that, 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 well, I think there's probably... And these are going to be the boring ones, but I can tell you these are the biggest hitters. Number one, you need to get fitter. Right. Um, number two, you you definitely need to do something about improving your your dietary input. So again, a, a diet that is high in plant foods. So plant um, fiber particularly. To, yes, to the minimal pro, minimally processed diets. Yeah, um, no sugar wanna, presumably. Uh, yeah. Uh, you want to, as I say, anything that is highly processed is probably not not great for. I'm going to say it's not great for you, but no. it, it, you're 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 adding to to the potential load. You need to sleep well, right. and again, you need to sort of you need a little bit of stress in your life because actually your body works optimally with some degree of stress. That's um, why I but, get up and have a cold shower because yeah, that well, again, of, this that little bit of stress, these, that micro stressor, is giving me that little bit of cortisol in the morning to get going and then and then obviously I wouldn't have a cold shower before bed but I, I I do like it first thing well and again one of the key things about that is that you're creating what we call a hormetic stress so hormesis is one of the key theories in longevity is that a human body needs these little stresses on a daily basis to be optimal and that hormetic stress of a cold shower stimulates cortisol release in the morning and remember cortisol is fundamentally that hormone that gets you up and going in the morning and is fundamentally a anti-inflammatory hormone as well. Is so it? The more that, stress- that, that's, that, that's not what we think, is it? We think about cortisol as actually causing inflammation. Well, I, again, I, I think on everything, it's all, it's the Goldilocks effect. Mm-hmm. So it's making sure that you've got enough optimal levels at any one time uh, of mm-hmm. any one life course. Not too much, not too little but just right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about supplements to help reduce inflammation? I'm working a lot. Obviously, I've got my new book coming out later this year, A Better Second Half. And I was very interested in some of these so-called longevity supplements and the names of which I'm sure you'll be very familiar with. Things like uh, resveratrol and alpha-lipoic acid and spermidine. You know, are these sort of weapons in your arsenal of helping to combat general disease as well as helping to generate longevity and better health so here's the analogy i give to patients is that you know i massively value supplementation but it's more the sort of coating on the coating in the tens and thousands on the on the top of the cake oh really yeah uh, as opposed to against doing the fundamental basics of yeah you've lifestyle. got to do both haven't you i mean it's interesting yeah, so, that you know when i asked about reducing inflammation one of the, the first things you said was exercise you know so we're actually going to have to to put the work in interestingly how does exercise reduce inflammation i would have thought if anything it could have kind of led to it because you're you're stressing the body a bit you sort of want the exercise session liz to stimulate the inflammation We've learned huge amounts in the last 20 years about muscle as a secreting organ. And we, we think it's probably the most powerful secreting organ that we've wow. got. Muscle. And Gosh. so what you want to do is you need to stress that body. You need to mm-hmm. stress the muscles. And you do want to create some degree of inflammation from that workout. Because what happens is that 
your muscles gift you these beautiful molecules that travel both locally in the muscle that you're working, but around the body and, and really help the body to, to be at its best. Now, there is a balance to this, of course. And, and what I would say on that, if, the, if you are doing too much exercise too often and not recovering well, then that's problematic. So again, it's the Goldilocks effect right. again. But you need to be able to, it's like I say, exercise is a hormetic stress. So you do want to stress the body to some degree consistently. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it just gets better at better of controlling inflammation. And if you look at all the evidence with regards to people who consistently exercise against people who don't, their inflammatory markers are consistent. That's higher. really interesting. And I remember, actually, I, I started running, I mean, just a few years ago. And I have a great trainer who, who encourages me and actually got me started in the first place. But he's very much against running marathons and long distances because he says the extra stress it puts on the body. There is a sweet spot, isn't there, where you do just enough exercise. There is for your metabolism and for your re reduction of inflammation. But whatever you do, do not overdo it because then it becomes counterproductive. There's, there's definitely fine mm. lines. Yeah. In terms of other things that we can do, particularly looking at longevity, and I talked about some of those supplements and some of those sort of new buzzwords that, that we're hearing more about. One of the things that, that you, I'm sure you will know much about, and maybe many of the listeners too, is the topic of methylation. And where that fits yep. into within the body, I struggle with the definition of methylation. So for those who aren't familiar with the term, perhaps you could give us a kind of a, a quick bluffer's guide. Well, I've sort of been understanding methylation for the last 20 years and I'm still not <laughs> I sure it's I not just me. it too well. So <laughs> it's, not, it's not an easy one to do, but... But let me just let me. So it's a crucial process that the body does, and and what it does is is essentially it it does this transfer of what we call methyl groups, and it either adds in or takes out these methyl groups to certain reactions, and that could be it regulates your DNA, it helps and um, various metabolic pathways. It helps the formation of hormones and neurotransmitters, if you like. So it, it's a pretty important process. And, and really, what as I say, what it's trying to do, it's, it's trying to, if you talk about how it regulates the DNA, it helps DNA to actually regulate the way your genes express themselves. And so sometimes those genes need to be turned up or sometimes those genes need to be turned off. So methylation, for example, does a really good job of turning off some of the promoter regions on cancer genes. Mm. So that's one of the key things about mm -hmm. methylation. It helps reduce your cancer mm. risk if you're methylating correctly. Right. Now, what we know on that is that, again, methylation is 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 something that you can easily test um, through DNA and actually get a, a genetic profile with regards to some of the way you mm -hmm. methylate. So you're definitely going to have these individuals who, through genetic predisposition, maybe don't methylate or potentially don't methylate as well as others. And so you can test that really easily. But what I would say on that is that um, just because you have a DNA panel that shows that maybe you're at risk of not methylating correctly, that doesn't ever mean to say that you don't. And this is the whole thing about using genomic tests and being able to sort of make some decisions with regards to what a patient needs to do going forward. Because we've seen some horror shows with regards to genetics and the predisposition for disease, but that disease actually never mm -hmm. plays out. And that's because this individual, for, um, for, for whatever reason, is actually living a lifestyle that is meaning that these genes aren't playing out in real time. 
And there's lots of ways that we can look at methylation and test to see whether it's working correctly. And, and generally we'll use, a, we'll use a blood test and, and we'll test for homocysteine. Right. Very interesting. And for those of us who can't or don't go for these methylation tests, there are some simple strategies that we can adopt in daily life that would just support methylation. I've read that eating more cruciferous vegetables, for example, you know, the, the brassica family, yep. cabbage, broccoli, all of that actually assists in some way. Am I right in being sulfur donors? Yep. Uh, w- yes, which will absolutely. help with methylation. So presumably this is sort of good, just general practice anyway. And then if you want to drill down into testing for methylation, you can do. You can, but- you can do. But what I would say on that is that, again, let's imagine you you never go any further in that. What I would say is that, you know, is your lifestyle as good as you would? Because obviously exercise increases methylation capacity as well. So, you know, are you doing the fundamentals well? Have you got a very rich, you know, plant-based diet? Yes, yeah, and again, I'm not saying that your diet should be plant based, but there should be a lot Plants of there should well. be a lot of yes. diversity I mean, I, I, of plant yeah. foods in the yeah. diet. And then, you know, as an insurance policy, you know, if you're really worried, then I would be looking to give a, a good one a day multivitamin that has B complex vitamins in there that are in methylated mm. form, and that really sort of gives you a, a, another added insurance policy that you're maybe covering your bases. Now, as I said to you, that the next step on that is, okay, so do you go and do a homocysteine level to give you an indication of how well you're methylating at, at that time? And if that, that homocysteine level doesn't look good, does that give you the next step where you think, mm, okay, we probably need to go and look at the genes here? Because if your homocysteine is higher than we would like, then maybe you are an individual who is unfortunately maybe always going to struggle with the capacity to methylate effectively and so what is homocysteine then is it something that we would just pick up in a blood test and where where does it come from should should we be supplementing with it well no homocysteine is a um is a protein that's made in the liver and like everything it's um it's a goldilocks effect so too little of homocysteine is not good you're trying to find an optimal level but certainly too high a level of homocysteine is definitely implicated in in it's an independent risk factor for both alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease uh, and so, you know, it is a, it is quite an important marker. Um, it's reasonably expensive to do, actually, Liz. It's about 75 quid to right. have it done. Yeah, but in um, terms of uh, overall health, I mean, at what point do you think our GPs are going to be in a position to, you know, answer us positively if we go in there? Presumably, if you go into a surgery now and say, actually, doctor, you know, I'm concerned about my health. Can we please run a homocysteine check and, uh, and check for methylation? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I think it's unlikely that would that would happen um and i don't think that is down to the gps um i mean many gps you know i think probably would have some understanding of homocysteine i think it's more down to the way probably the nhs strategy uh, is set up and the nice guidelines are set up because look let's face it unless you are showing considerable signs of vitamin D deficiency, they won't test for it. Okay, well, let's take a pause there because I absolutely want to come back and pick up on that point and also drill into some of the other data actually surrounding fitness, in particular things like fitness apps and gadgets that some of us may have received as Christmas presents. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Now, something that I really want to pick up on there was your point about vitamin D, that magic expression. And I know that vitamin D testing, for example, is widely available. You can walk into any chemist, you can get a, a pinprick blood test, and that will tell you the amount of vitamin D that's circulating in your blood. But it won't necessarily tell you whether your body is using it or not. So, for example, my daughter, Brella, and she's spoken about this, so I'm not betraying any confidence here. She has good levels of vitamin D in her blood, but she doesn't have the gene expression that's transporting it or absorbing it. So in order for her to be able to utilize vitamin D properly, she has to take quite seriously high levels of supplementation, which, you know, when you screen her blood, you might think, oh, gosh, that's that's a lot of vitamin D, you know, but her body is actually only using a small proportion of it. So I guess that's just an example of how testing can give you a false sense of security. Well, what I would say on that is that, um, you know, I'm a big advocate of making sure that every single person at least understand vitamin D better than we are at the moment. And I say that because it's a real low hanging fruit that everyone can improve their health with. Wow, that's that's a bold statement. But But also what I would say on that is that I think the advice we're being given for me is I think is inadequate. I think there's still the recommendations um, through the NICE guidelines of 400 international units a day. And and I think this is where you go. Well, again, I'd still love to know what is that based off? Is that based off um, deficiency of bone disorders and vitamin D as related to bone? Or is it related to vitamin D as it relates to whole body, like um, a robust immune response? 
so and again maybe Liz this is where maybe the scientific evidence hasn't caught up but but look on an individual basis we get patients and again you only have to look at the literature with regards to um, vitamin D deficiency with regards to you know populations in the UK it's endemic the research is there to show that this is this is problematic and and, you know, I think for me, I still struggle to understand is like, why is it that we're not giving people over 60 a vitamin D supplement um, through the NHS throughout the autumn and winter months? It just doesn't make no. any sense. It's to simple. Me at all. It's cheap. It's safe. It's effective. It's supporting the immune system because vitamin D actually it's not a true vitamin, is it? It's more of a hormone in its action. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a pro hormone. So so let's imagine that you just hang around for your life with one of your you know most essential hormones that never ever works um, anywhere near effectively as it should do. You're going to have problems with it, and and so you know we've been doing vitamin D testing and genomics for the last 15 years and it's been quite incredible about what we found I think your daughter is a classic example of you know we we follow patients from a point we, we we test patients twice a year and that's generally in the autumn because we want to see how well they've stocked up in the summer and then generally end of January because we want to see how the winter has affected them and of course vitamin D is a fat soluble pro hormone is going to you're going to utilize it up through the winter if you're not additionally supplementing mm -hmm. and so what we found for many people is that vitamin D the sort of physiology of it it's quite interesting and this is where the genes and I say this is obviously what's your daughter's situation is that she could spend the whole summer pretty much out in in very sunny days and then still get to the autumn and her blood levels aren't sort of reflective of how much sunshine she's had and so she's a classic individual where her vitamin d genetics actually go against her so she's had a huge amount of sun um, and obviously when the sun's rays hit the skin um, it's involved with cholesterol and you make what's called an inactive vitamin d now that vitamin d then has to travel down to the liver and it has to go through what we call 25 hydroxylase so the liver's basically jo a job there is that through various different enzymes is changing this inactive vitamin d to to active vitamin d and for many that phase doesn't work so well and so regardless of the amount of sunshine they've had suddenly their capacity to generate vitamin d gets reduced at the first step and then what's going to happen then is then when that active vitamin d has been made it has to get on the vit what i call a vitamin d bus right and that is the bus yeah. that transports the active vitamin D around the body to the VDR, which is called the vitamin D receptors. Now, these vitamin D receptors we know are on every single cell. Wow. So that tells you how important That's vitamin amazing, D is. And you've got to think about this is the vitamin D receptor is like the bouncer on the door. And if that bouncer doesn't want you to come in, you're going to have problems. So we see problems both not only with the capacity and effectiveness of the bus to take active vitamin D around the body. But once the bus drops that vitamin D off at a receptor, how receptive are those receptor sites to be able to take the vitamin D? And for many, particularly like your daughter, it doesn't work. All those systems don't work no. so well. So she needs huge amounts of vitamin D to actually get her get a little bit of it actually being absorbed and used. Exactly. Mm. So you're going to and this is a really great example of personalization is that, you know, and we work this out pretty quickly with our patients. We know we have certain patients where 
certainly through the winter, autumn and winter, we've got them on five, 10,000 international units a day to be able to push these pathways to get more circulating mm. vitamin D. Doesn't, doesn't surprise me. So that's me. a really good example yeah. of the personalization of what you can do with regular testing and with a genomic understanding. And then, of course, what you've got to be able to do with that is play it out with that patient to see, OK, I'm going to give you 10,000 international units. We're going to we're going to play this out for six to eight weeks and then we're going to see how well you're coming up through um, through the numbers. Now, what I'd also say on this, Liz, is that um, and hopefully this is helpful for for the people listening, is that. Uh, the minimum requirement I want from all of my patients is based off the the COVID data. And there's been several papers that has looked at your risk of COVID. And I, I'm, and I know we're using COVID because it's it's been, well, basically the, the headline for the last four or five years. But what I'm talking about here is probably immune competence in general. So there's been several really robust studies that's looked at um, your risk of COVID significantly drops if you can maintain a vitamin D level, a minimum of 125 nanomoles. And so that's my that's my minimum target from all of my patients, because what I'm always trying to do with my patients is reduce their risks of colds and infections mm-hmm. as we go through mm-hmm. the autumn and winter. And this is such a easy thing to Isn't do. It? From a, it really is. It's yeah. so simple, but Cheap so powerful. Yeah. And I just yeah. don't understand. Well, I, I sort of understand why we don't do it in, from a point of view of the NHS, but it is what it is. And again, I think most people in the industry, I mean, this is what most people are doing. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mentioned that many of us may have received, you know, fitness trackers or apps or gadgets and things, maybe as Christmas presents, or maybe it's something that, that we're digging into. And I've got various apps on my phone, but I have to say there's a few things about them that still puzzle me. So while I've got you and your great brain here, particularly with all your exercise knowledge, and this is going to be such basic questioning for you, but forgive my ignorance here. There are a couple of metrics that I hear talked about all the time that I would love you just to be able to explain. One is VO2 max and the other is heart rate variability. You know, what are these measurements in terms of fitness? How important are they? And and what does it mean? Okay, so uh, I suppose this is for sort of general health and I'd actually say um, very important for the longevity research. So VO2 max is really looking at the capacity. And uh, and I'm going to explain maximal because actually you probably don't do a classic VO2 max and I'll go into that. But but um, what we're looking at here is that how efficient is the whole of your body from a point of view of utilizing oxygen? So we can measure that. We used to measure that. And I can remember in my student days, we would measure it in a lab and we would do a VO2 max test which means that you would be all hooked up to certain machines and it would be a maximum test. So it's not pretty, i.e. you're running or you're, you're cycling. I've to done your, it. It's exhausting. Yeah, okay. yeah it's, not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a nice thing to do, but that's gold standard as given as your VO2 max. And what we're trying to record there is how efficient can your body be utilizing oxygen as a fuel source? Now, what, what, what we tend to do is what we call submaximal VO2 maxes. And that is that you might be able to do something where we're getting a sort of an extrapolation of um, where we think you're going to go through a, a test that maybe is not as difficult. But what this is measuring is 
we're measuring the capacity of the power plants of every cell to be able to utilize oxygen. So this is what this is the mitochondria. So we're really looking at mitochondria, which are the power plants of your your cells in every cell of your body, whether that's brain, whether that's muscle. And we're measuring the capacity to generate energy for you. Mm -hmm. So do you want a high number? And, and if you are beginning to track it, are you looking to increase your VO2 max reading? So VO2 max is probably one of the biggest predictors of health and longevity that we have. Wow, that's quite a statement. So, mm. And this comes back to where exercise is, is, you know, pretty much the key player. VO2 max clear in the literature is one of the probably the key indicator of longevity. And that is your capacity to utilize oxygen as a fuel source. And again, it's given as an indication, you'll hear of all this talk about, you know, mitochondrial health. Well, mitochondrial health is directly measured through VO2 max. So the fitter you are, the more those numbers go up, right. the better you're going to be. Right. So that's something that you can measure and you can have as a benchmark and then look to increase and know that you're making a difference and getting fitter and stronger. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it really is giving you that indication. And it's clear in the literature. So, you know, when I look at the longevity stuff, a lot of you remember those supplementation that we talked about. For me, they're the tens of thousands on the top and maybe a little bit of the cream on the top. But the VO2 max is the full cake underneath. Oh, really? As far wow. as... <laughs> It's capacity to yeah. make changes. And Brilliant. I think this is the key thing yeah, here. Is that with, with exercise, how important that is. There's no question, Liz. There's nothing that touches this, this marker. What I would also say on that as well is that talking on longevity, there's two things you've got to think about. Number one, your VO2 max, you, again, continue to get it as high as you can. But then it comes back to when we're talking about real strong predictive markers of longevity. The other one is strength. Mm. And how strong you are fundamentally dictates how long you're going to live as well. And and that's why, as you know, my, my little Instagram posts are all about yes, strength work. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And and actually, you know, I'm lifting weights now in, in later life, which I never did before and, and getting yep. stronger and, and feeling fitter and hopefully, you know, going to live longer and, and better perhaps as, as a result. Can we finish up then by just touching on yep. heart rate variability? What, what, what is that as a measurement in terms of fitness and, and, and why does it matter if it does? Yeah, so I, I, again, um, it, I, I, you know, if you've got a tech like a Whoop or a Zoom or a Garmin or mm. your Apple Watch, they should be tracking what's called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is uh, incredibly well validated in the science. We've got, you know, at least three decades worth of information about it. And I think this really does warrant a sort of um, a, a bit of a sort of background to it because it is so important. So what we're measuring, actually, let me take a step back because I think this, I think summarizes another aspect of overall health, which is really, really important, is that the more diverse and flexible any system is, Liz, the more chance it has of being successful. So let me give you an indication of that. That is why we know from a microbiome perspective, the more diverse that microbiome, the more likely it has the capacity to deal with challenge. And so what we've learned with regards to your heartbeat is that the more variation in your heartbeat, the more it's showing a heart that is healthy because it has capacity, more capacity to be able to change to challenge. 
Right. So we used to think that our heart beats exactly the same all the time. And that's not what we found at all. And in fact, if you look at the literature, the more your heart becomes the same beat to beat, the lack of variation, the more likely you're in trouble. So what you need to be very heart healthy is to have a heart rate and a heartbeat that has these slight variations. And the more varied those variations, we know we're looking at a heart that is more capable of dealing with a lot of challenges. And so this is also involved with your heart rate and heart rate variability is heavily involved with regards to your, your, your nervous system. And what it's given us a really good indication of is obviously you've got two arms to that nervous system. You've got the nervous system that excites, which is called the sympathetic nervous system. And then you've got the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the one that calms you. Now, we know that most humans spend more time in the fight or flight, this sympathetic drive, where they're more likely to be stressed, more likely to be anxious. And we know the more time you spend in that, the less likely you're going to have an, a, a really high heart rate variability. And that's what, you're, what you want. Now, these are all intimately tied into what we call the vagus nerve. And this is a big mm. wandering nerve that comes out the brain and goes all the way down the body. And this is associated with what we call vagal tone. And that vagal nerve really does have an important role to pay with regards to heart rate variability, but overall health as well. And we know that heart rate variability is being and poor heart rate variability is involved with pretty much most chronic diseases. But but really, you know, in particular from stuff like PTSD, inflammatory disorders, pain disorders, even asthma. We know that heart rate variability is poorer in chronic disease conditions. Fascinating. So bottom line is that you're looking for a higher score. And if you want to track your heart rate variability, HRV, that, that you that, that you want that number to be going up, not going down. Yeah. And, and again, various various tech is going to track it in, in a certain way. So, you know, it might be this is your stress load for today, etc. So and it's giving you an indication and tracking things. But in, in, in reality, you want your heart rate variability to be higher rather than lower. A low score d- isn't what where you want to be. Now, that could be for, again, a whole host of things. But everything that we've talked about so far always brings me back to the basics. If you're not fit enough, you need to get fitter. If your diet's not great, you need to change it. If you're under an enormous amount of stress, you need to do something about it. If you're not sleeping well, you need to do something about it. And these are all the sort of fundamental basics before we go and spend thousands of thousands of pounds on testing and also, you know, throwing a load of supplementation down us. It's like, okay, have I done the basics well first? Because they are all the key players that build the majority of the cake. Absolutely fascinating and a very positive note to end on something that we can all achieve and hopefully set our goals for the year ahead. Pete, the biggest thank you for spending so much time both last week and today. These conversations are fascinating. Please come back and talk to us again. I love our conversations. Thank you. Pleasure. Pete, the biggest thank you again for spending so much time both last week and today demystifying so many concepts and hacks and healthy principles for all of us. And you can find more brilliant content from Pete on his Instagram. He's at PeteWilliams underscore FMA, FMA, of course, being Functional Medicine Associates. And you can find us on Instagram at Lizelle Wellbeing. 
So what did you take away from everything Pete's been talking about? Are you starting to look at your own health a little differently, maybe? Do let's continue this conversation in the Instagram comments online. And next week, are you a menopausal snorer? I have to say, I might just be. Well, join me and a breathing expert next time if you want to get on top of that habit this year. And perhaps you'd like to listen to that episode ad-free and 24 hours before general release. Well, you can. Just subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. Okay, until the next time, go well, stay well. Bye-bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.